Hello! We're glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And today we'd like to consider what might seem to be a very kind of meta-level topic. In fact, it involves the very thing that we're trying to do right now, where I'm speaking and you're hearing. And how does it work for me to speak and for you to not only hear, but also understand? In the New Testament, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, we read, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is very fundamental and foundational doctrine for both evangelism and promoting the gospel, and to encourage people in their faith. And we have the opportunity to have faith. Because we are to be faithful in our lives, in, in the life that God has given us, and through the grace that God has provided. So we are able to, to share in faith. But God doesn't force us or coerce us into having faith. The way that we have faith is not because God gives it as some kind of gift capriciously to some and not to others. Obviously, God provides the opportunity to come to faith. But He's not going to force us to believe. We're given the option to choose whether we're going to accept the things that he has told us or not. And the way that we develop faith is by the word of Christ being preached. And it's a good question to wonder, how does that happen? How do people hear the word of Christ and understand it? And as much of a question is the opposite. Why does it not happen? How come, as Paul will say in Romans 10 and verse 16, that not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That many do not believe when they hear it. So how can it be that many reject uh, what they hear? And this is a question and an issue that comes to mind because it's very easy to kind of fall back into a very, very simple and almost too facile view of the hearing and understanding process. And it's very seductive to do that. The idea there is that the preacher is faithfully speaking this message objectively, that the gospel is preached in its objective simplicity and purity, and that the hearer is going to hear this objectively, without any passions or emotion involved, and, and, and accept it on an objective level, uh, understands what's being said, and knows to accept it if it's the word of Christ, and to reject it as if, if, if it is inconsistent with the word of Christ. And in this view, the only forces at work are human, the human speaker and the human listener. And we speak of objectivity, the idea is that the message is not enculturated. It's not specific to one culture or to another culture, and it, but in the idea is that the substantive message is the same no matter when it would have been said, whether today or 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago. And that there's an expectation that both the speaker and the hearer are going to uh, communicate this message without any preconceived bias or cultural influence. And there, it's only a mental process. There's no room left in this idea for emotional, visceral, or some kind of subjective feeling or force at work. And it's very easy to hold on to that, that, well, somebody preaches and another person listens, and that's a very basic form of communication going on. But if we overlook these complexities, we do still at our peril. There's a wonderful quote by George Bernard Shaw, that the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Because it's very hard to communicate, actually. 
It's very hard to communicate a message so that it is understood exactly as the speaker intended it. And there's a lot of forces and factors at work in the communication. And those forces and factors influence what and how is understood and on what basis. And that's why it's worth some t- to spend some time considering the process of hearing and understanding and some of the forces and factors that influence that process. When we talk about hearing and understanding, it's the communication process. And there is a goal in the communication process. We see it illustrated for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 2, where Paul exhorts Timothy to let what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We, we communicate the gospel to people so they will come to faith in Jesus. We teach them the truth of God so they can then teach other people the truth of God. And so that's the goal of communicating the gospel, and it is a good one and a worthy one. Whether a person hears the gospel through reading the pages of Scripture, so to speak, or proclaimed by a preacher, this process is going to follow a predictable pattern. And this is something that we can see a lot of places. A lot of places have been synthesized. I'm taking kind of some cues from David Hesselgraves, Communicating Christ Cross-Culturally, that any communication requires a source and a respondent. The source is the one speaking or communicating. Uh, the respondent is the one who is listening or who is the uh, object recipient of the communication. And what happens is the source encodes the message, and the respondent, therefore, must decode the message. An example of this, it's actually a gesture, is a male head nod. Uh, when, a, when a male uses a head nod toward another male, it's an encoded form of communication. And a respondent, especially in American culture, would decode that message, that it is a recognition of their existence and presence. Hi, how are you doing? I see you there. I, recognize, I, I am indi- showing an indication that you have either made eye contact with me or that I am I, recognizing your existence uh, as I'm passing by. Uh, and how much more communication is going to go on is going to be based upon the familiarity of the source and the respondent in that situation. Again, if it's just two strangers and somebody's making eye contact, it's an indication that I've seen that you've made eye contact. If it's two people who are acquaintances, uh, it's a recognition that they have noted that each other is there. If they're de- good friends, it might be the beginning of a conversation or kind of getting caught back up. And so the encoding of that message is not just words spoken, but it can be body language, gestures, tone, pitch and other nuances of communication. And likewise, a decoding of a message is not just comprehending the words that are being spoken, but also discerning aspects of meaning that may come from body language, from gestures, from tone and pitch, and so on and so forth. And so when the gospel is being communicated, we're not just communicating with the words themselves, but also by gestures, body language, tone, pitch, and other nuances of communication. We can certainly understand that, especially where there's the disconnect. If somebody is getting extremely happy about something sad, Jesus was killed! Or perhaps is extremely somber about something that should be great news. Jesus rose from the dead. Just using voice, tone, and pitch, there's a disconnect between the substance of what was just said and the import of the message. And that's something that's we see many times in the communication process that we take for granted. We take for granted that tone and pitch help communicate. We take for granted that body language helps emphasize uh, communication. Uh, but that's all part of the communication process. Now, what part of the difficulty we have when we approach Scripture 
is when we look at scripture, there's no tone, there's no pitch, there's no body language, there's no gestures, there's just words on a page. Now, there are times where we read the words and we can kind of denote certain kind of emotions. In 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, uh, when Paul is talking about the existence of the, the one who, was, who had his father's wife, uh, there seems to certainly be some kind of, of, of sharpness or exasperation, a frustration, of some kind of negative emotion. You are arrogant. Ought you rather not mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 2, for instance. Uh, we can read from that that's not going to be a happy tone. It's not going to be something uh, enjoyable. Uh, there's definitely a negative pallor upon that verse, and it needs to be communicated with the body language and the tone and pitch that would go along with that. Uh, frustration is certainly there in, the, in Galatians 1 through 5, uh, where Paul is just perplexed. He's, he's confused about these Corinthians. I mean, Galatians, and why they've so quickly departed and followed after another gospel. And we can certainly see that kind of exasperation some of the things that he says. Um, but when the gospel is proclaimed, the hearer is going to get sense perception based upon the speaker's body language, tone, pitch, and other communication nuances. And that's why when the gospel is communicated, we need to give concern not just for uh, the words that we're saying, but how we're encoding them in terms of tone and pitch and gestures. Uh, if we are, for instance, reading Scripture, and we, we aren't reading it with any kind of, of passion or interest at all, uh, it, it can sometimes completely miss what's going on. For instance, 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. That was very monotone and boring and does not communicate what is being said. Sure, uh, the words have been faithfully recounted. But that's not a faithful rendering of what was said. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. You can say it with a little bit of animation. Where rejoice is a happy thing. Rejoice! The bitch goes up. It's something happy. It's not... Rejoice. Completely different. Rejoice! Rejoice. Be at peace! Be at peace. Just the tone and the pitch can really transform the message. And the, one of the biggest disservices we can do to Scripture is to try to strip it of that feeling, because that feeling is there, because this is part of the human communication process. And yes, that's an active interpretation. But that's how we encode the message. When we communicate this message, we're going to be including with it not just the words, but the tone, the pitch, the gestures. All these things are going to transmit what we're trying to say. And they will be decoded appropriately. And so that's a very important part of this process. And that's why it's good for us to now spend and focus specifically on the source and then the respondent in greater detail. Now, all communication has to be with the source. Somebody has to communicate. 
The preacher or speaker, the one who is the source, must encode the gospel message so that it can be properly decoded by the respondent or the hearer. So to preach the gospel of Christ is never an objective event or affair. Any proclamation of the gospel is an interpretation. First, we can see this in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And verses 26 through 40. And Philip approaches this eunuch who is reading in Isaiah 53. Now, Philip doesn't just walk up there and say, Well, I know you're reading in Isaiah, but let me start telling you about Jesus this way. He doesn't know how he does it at all. Philip uses Isaiah 53, where this eunuch is reading, who he's trying to understand this text, and from it he preaches Jesus. He finds a way to start where the the person is, and he encodes the message of the gospel in light of who the person is, their study, their interest, knowing who they are, their worldview, what there's already agreement on, what information needs to be transmitted for them to come to an understanding of who Jesus is, and to go from there. And the eunuch obeys the gospel and goes away rejoicing. And so we see here that Philip encodes the message, communicates the message, the eunuch decodes the message, understands a message, recognizes his need to respond to the message, and responds appropriately. This is a great example of how that communication takes place. Now, if we tell this story, are we properly communicating if we tell it as a tragedy? No. If we said, as in verse 39, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. If we said that in a sad boring tone, does that really communicate the fact that the eunuch went away rejoicing, which is a happy thing? No. And that's why it's so important for us that to relate that message of Scripture that we're using that proper emphasis, body language, and tone. Because we do not want to create dissonance and a disconnect between what we're trying to say and how we're communicating what we're trying to say. And that means that communication takes effort. And not just the effort to actually start using the vocal cords. But that a lot of things have to happen before you can have good communication. First of all, when it comes to the gospel, the preacher must first be devoted to understanding the original message. You can't encode the message if you haven't yet decoded it. You've got to first listen to the words of God in Scripture and decode what God has communicated through the Holy Spirit so that you can handle the word rightly and therefore find a way of encoding it to communicate to other people, Second Timothy 2.15. That decoding is going to require effort to understand the text and its historical context. It's going to need to understand the differences sometimes between the original language and English and how that informs understanding, how this text has been interpreted and why people have interpreted it the way that they have. We need to remember that there is no preacher who is in some objective or timeless circumstance. A preacher today is a 21st century American. And the best that a preacher can do is recognize how their 21st century American, post-modern, post-Christian, etc., understanding of the world, how his particular context has led him to understand the world in a certain way, and to be aware of that coloration, and to make sure that the way he communicates the gospel is with integrity, taking seriously what the scriptures have said and doing the best to under- apply it to this time as opposed to just being a justification for whatever things want to be justified in this 21st century context. And that's going to be very important for how he encodes a message for others to hear him. Now, the, the scriptures are replete with warnings about those who attempt to speak for God, but to do so to preach smooth things to those who hear. 
And such people, beyond possible carnal motivations, are allowing their contextual assumptions to override what God is trying to communicate to them. Uh, those are those who, in 1 Timothy 4.1, have gone over the doctrine of demons whose consciences have been seared as with an iron. Because they're sinning, they, they're justifying their sin, and they have no problems or qualms distorting the gospel message in order to justify uh, all of that. Um, they're just distortions. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 14, uh, he will give an actual message to the false prophets. Uh, o Lord Yahweh, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And then God will go on to show how, no, I, they are speaking lying words. I did not tell these things to them. But that's something that you want to hear. Hearing Jeremiah said, God's going to bring the Babylonians and, and destroy this place unless you repent, versus hearing, oh, no, you will not see the sword. Everything will be great. We know which one we'd want to hear. And the same was true for those who lived in Judah in the end of the 7th and the early 6th century. And so having done all of that work beforehand, the preacher then must proclaim the message in a language and idiom familiar to those who hear. And this is to enhance receptivity and understanding. And that he's not just going to speak it with words, but that he's going to allow his understanding of the text to inform the tone and the pitch, the energy, the gestures, all of these things, and lifestyle. That's another one that we cannot forget. Now, for instance, in Acts 13, verses Acts 17, Paul preaches the gospel. But he's preaching first to Jews in Antioch, the city, and then secondly to uh, the pagan philosophers at Mars Hill. He preaches the same themes, but entirely different ways, based upon who his audience is. This is not watering down or distorting the gospel message. Instead, it's, it's communicating so as to be understood. If you're talking with people who have never been in a Christian environment, using terms familiar to Christians but not familiar to those in greater society is not going to enhance or facilitate understanding. Uh, You're going to need to communicate according to what the people can understand. Uh, Just to preach so as to sound amazing is not real preaching. Preaching is designed to be understood. It's to encourage to develop faith. And we understand the disconnect if the body language or tone is inconsistent with the message, or if the speaker is not speaking the way you're used to. But we also understand that if the preacher's up there saying one thing, but does other things in their lives, and everybody knows it, that's also going to hinder people receiving the message. Because when we hear somebody saying one thing but doing another, we're more tempted to follow what they do than what they say. And this is what James warns us about in James 1, 20-25. So preaching the gospel involves a whole lot more than just words. And that's why we've got all kinds of concerns in Scripture. Colossians 4, 5-6, that so we need to speak. Uh, our, our speech should be seasoned as with salt. That gives grace to those who hear. In 2 Timothy 2.15, that we handle rightly the word of truth. 1 Peter 3.15, that we make our defense. We do it with love and gentleness. That our, our communication is an embodiment of the proclamation of the gospel. And so if we are speaking angry and early and harshly, trying to bring people to salvation, uh, that may not go over the best. That if we are not living according to that message, it's not going to go well. And so we need to give consideration to how we handle Scripture, how we present the Gospel. And we need to keep the goal of 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 in mind, where Paul says that he will be all things to all people. Uh, that we need to do what's necessary within the will of God to save as many as possible. And that means that we're going to have to start looking at the world the way others see the world. We need to put ourselves in those situations, at least mentally, so that we can find a way to communicate to them in a way that they understand. 
And it's not enough just to, to communicate in a way we feel is comfortable and say, well, there you go, there you have it, uh, take it or leave it. And if they've, they walk away without real understanding because it wasn't encoded in a way they can decode easily, uh, then the fault is still with us because we need to do everything we can to, to facilitate the reception of the gospel message. Now, there are going to be a lot of people who aren't going to hear because they don't want to hear, and they refuse to hear. But what will happen if there are some who really wanted to hear but didn't understand what we were trying to communicate or saw a disconnect in what we were trying to communicate? What if we have loaded a lot of tradition or a certain type of culture into our presentation of the gospel that proved to be stumbling blocks? That when people hear what we say, they're not necessarily seeing the gospel of Christ. They're seeing the gospel as understood in a certain subculture, subset of the population. And whereas they may be interested in the gospel, they may not be interested in that subculture. So there is a lot on the side of the source, the preacher speaker, to do in order to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ, as is exhorted in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. So that's on the side of the speaker. There's also, of course, the one who's here. And the goal of communication is for that respondent, the one who hears, to be able to decode and understand the message. Now, we've already seen the responsibility necessary for decoding what God has revealed in Scripture, to hear His voice through its pages. And much of what we'll say about hearing a preacher is also appropriate for how we respond to hearing the words of God in Scripture. As we see in 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, Hebrews 4, 12, that that word is very powerful and is inspired of God. Now, we always have to keep in mind that the person who is hearing, the respondent, is a fully developed person. That he lives... In a particular context, he's got a particular worldview informed by the way he or she was brought up, by their education, by their experiences, and by the culture and society and the context in which they live. Everybody, when they hear a new message, they're trying to make it fit what they've already heard. They already have boxes in their mind. And so if you are telling somebody the gospel for the first time, they're going to try to figure out what boxes it can fit in, what existing scheme will that work with? That's what all of us does. Now, the very idea of Christianity, though, as we see in Matthew 7, 24-27, with the illustration of the building on the rock or building on the sand, or in Colossians 2, 1-10, where Paul says we need to be rooted in Christ, the whole idea is that when we hear the gospel, we're supposed to see that since we have fallen and our way of looking at things has been corrupted by sin, that we need to start over. That we need to remove every mental obstacle, every mental structure we've built that is not built upon Christ. And instead, root everything we think, feel, and believe on who Christ is. So when we're preaching the gospel, we're really asking people to destroy the lives that they've lived and overthrow them. In a very real sense. Because a lot of what they think and feel and act is going to have to change. It may not happen overnight, but it's going to have to change. And so that is why hearing becomes a far more complicated process. Now, there's first of all the basic comprehension issues. And there might be some complications from basic comprehension. That the one who hears may have difficulties in decoding the message because the language is unfamiliar. Uh, maybe she can't relate what she's heard to what anything she already understands. Or maybe uninformed or misinformed, misinformed about information. Maybe she didn't hear it right. Maybe she's assumed he, that the speaker was saying something he really isn't really saying. Maybe she just, or he or she just cut, you know, mentally cuts the person off after a few lines and just assumes that it's just like another version or distorted thing that he's heard before. Uh, and, and this all causes a lot of difficulty. Sometimes Christian jargon, gospel meeting, 
uh, some, a, a, a statement unique among churches of Christ. This is not even used anywhere else. You invite somebody to a gospel meeting. They may have no idea what you're talking about. Or an invitation. Uh, so many people don't even understand the idea of the invitation. Uh, many people have, have been told that they can come forward, and, and they hear that every week, but they don't actually ever think that, that that's what they're supposed to do. They, they don't understand the connection of what the invitation is trying to do. It may seem as obvious as day to those who have been in church forever, but to many who have not been in church, it just seems to be a, a, a formalized, fossilized ritual that nobody ever actually performs. Perhaps there's an inability to connect the biblical images in the Bible to 21st century existence. Uh, for instance, a wedding garment and why somebody would have one or not have one. Maybe a Roman military gear or the name of people. Or A lot of times that's a big problem when people start trying to read the Bible is they see all these names and all these things that are just foreign to them. And it really uh, drags them down and discourages them. Uh, another one is a big one is different understandings of words. Somebody talks about God and what God has done, and their definition of God is very different than the operating definition of the speaker. Uh, same with resurrection or other terms like that. And in those cases, a respondent might walk away, and they've never really understood or comprehended the gospel message as presented because there have been all of these stumbling blocks. Um, but then, of course, there's a me- there, there, let's assume for a second that there's actual understanding of the message. There's also the engaging of the message. It's very easy to assume that engagement in the message is only done on a fully rationalistic or objective basis, or that we appeal to people to somehow engage with the message only rationally and objectively. But that's never been how humanity works. And in fact, Scripture is full of different ways in which people engage with messages, even when those messages are understood. In Isaiah 6, 9-10, uh, that the, the message you go say is that to blind these people's eyes, to make deaf their ears, lest they see and hear and, and perceive uh, and come and be healed. Uh, it's not They weren't made blind and deaf because they didn't understand what Isaiah was telling them. It wasn't a lack of comprehension. It was the fact that they did not want to hear what Isaiah had to say. They, uh, it, it was not what was consistent with the way they saw the world, and therefore they rejected it. Jeremiah 26, 11 through 16, uh, the people understood Jeremiah very well about uh, comparing Jerusalem to Shiloh. And they didn't like that at all. And they could not believe that he would have the audacity to say such a thing in the name of Yahweh. And therefore, um, just in a, in a rush of anger, wanted to have him killed, and didn't really reflect on what he said. Uh, in Acts 2, 37, 74, we have uh, people cut to the heart by proclaiming the gospel. Uh, the ones in Acts 2 were convicted that they needed to humble themselves and follow the Lord Jesus. The ones in Acts 7 were con- did not like at all what Stephen had to say and stoned him. And so, in all these situations, there was an interplay between what was heard and thoughts, feelings, actions. That there is a lot of wrestling with what is said in the Word of God. We need to remember, every respondent has a fully existing worldview. And so, when somebody hears a gospel, there's going to be a very visceral reaction. There's either going to be a warm feeling of maybe acceptance or interest. There might be a cold feeling of disinterest or hatred or hostility even. And the very same person at different times may be moved differently based upon the particular circumstance in which they find themselves. And perhaps even as you've been listening to this lesson, you've been going through the same experience. Perhaps there have been some things that I've said that you can see and are consistent. And maybe you felt 
more warm to them, more open to them, more maybe even excited about them. Maybe there's some things you've been suspicious or skeptical about, and you feel kind of a little bit of hardness or coldness, and are more suspicious. Maybe even maybe you can see that maybe there's a point to it, but it's hard to to really absorb that because you've got this kind of initial hesitance or or problem with it. And now, granted. Coming to faith is never defined as feeling the warm fuzzies about everything proclaimed the gospel. That's something very important. Instead, coming to faith is a willingness to first own up to the difficulty with what's being proclaimed, and then proving willing to declare its truth despite our personal difficulties. Uh, if uh, I highly doubt that everything you've read in the Bible, if you've read the Bible or heard the gospel preached, that everything you've heard that came truly from God made you feel good, or that you were automatically warm to. No, there are certain things that all of us, in every generation, there are certain things that are very difficult for us to under- accept that are just counter-cultural, counter-everything we've ever been told, and there's going to be a lot of visceral resistance to it. Uh, Peter had that in John chapter 6, 66-69, when Jesus says to eat his body and drink his blood. Every Jewish person, a lot of non-Jewish people, uh, don't don't sit well with that. And and Peter doesn't try to rationalize or justify, but he just says, where else are we going to go? We believe that you have the words of eternal life. And so Peter's saying, in in effect, look, this is not easy. This is difficult. I don't like it, but I have to kind of grip to that because of who you are. And that's the way we have to orient ourselves toward God, because our feelings have been corrupted as well as our thoughts. And so therefore, just as we feel a certain way about a doctrine doesn't make it true or false. We might feel warm to something we should feel cold to. We might feel cold to something we should feel warm to. And that's why all of this needs to be trained by an informed understanding of God's Word. Now, anybody who will, who hears the Gospel and hears things that they agree with will feel warm to that, and that's fine. But, of course, it comes down to what happens when the Gospel tells you something about who you are in your life that is not exactly what you want to hear. Very precious few are going to be willing to reform their lives and to overthrow the structure that they built upon that flawed foundation and then build on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why in Matthew seven thirteen through 14 uh, Jesus says what he does about few finding the way to life and many going on the broad way to destruction. Because a lot of times... The truth of God is going to mean that the way you look at yourself and your parents and your upbringing, your culture, and your context is going to have to radically change, and that is very hard. So that we can see that the Word of God is living and active, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, quick to discern the thoughts and intention of the heart, in Hebrews 4.12. It's because it leads to very visceral reactions when our inconsistencies with God are exposed, and we either repent and reform because we've heard it, or we stand from a rebel, refusing to hear. And that is the way it is with everyone who responds to the gospel message. Now, this is only the beginning of scratching the surface of what is involved in the process of hearing and understanding. I hope that we can see that the process is a bit more complicated than we might imagine, but that it's still very critical. Now, the preacher and the hearer are not involved in some objective communication in a vacuum, that human communication is always in a context. That the preacher has to give thought and sensitivity to how he's proclaiming the message, both in the words and in all other aspects of communication. And that the hearer is going to have to come to terms of the message. To understand and affirm it as the truth of God and life are very different things. So let us seek faithful, to faithfully hear God's communication, to reform our worldview to fit what he has revealed, and then seek to persuade others to follow the Lord Jesus as well. We're again really glad that you spent this time with us. We hope that you find it encouraging. Uh, 
you may have some reactions to it, uh, positive or negative. If you'd like to talk about those, if you'd like to talk about some other subjects, about how to follow Jesus, maybe you have a prayer request, you just need to talk to somebody, uh, please let me know. Contact me through my website, theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or perhaps you're interested in learning more about the Venture to Christ in Los Angeles. We encourage you to check us out online at venturechristchrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Twitter, Meetup, and YouTube at Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.